0: Dave, would you mind just asking them if they can go somewhere else? (laughs) I mean that as kindly as possible. It's a conversation we've had before, and that's okay. Well, as we look at God's Word together this morning, we are beginning a really beautiful passage of Scripture, and as I studied it this week, there was just so many things that I hadn't seen before. Uh, and seeing how this letter, it's a magnificent letter, the letter of Ephesians fits together. And so we're beginning this morning a uh, a new section of Scripture that really talks about the unity that God has produced in the church. And we're going to, Lord willing, unpack this in the next few weeks, as we'll say in just a moment. But as I thought about this passage this morning, I thought about one of my heroes of faith, who is uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Many of you know him. Uh, I hope you've heard his sermons. If you haven't, let me encourage you just to listen to them online and you will be blessed if you do. Here was a man who faithfully preached the gospel in England in a time when pastors simply were not doing that. They were preaching modernity. They were preaching the future. They were preaching success. They were preaching how to have good lives. It's similar to what a lot of preachers in our day are preaching. Lloyd-Jones was not content to preach about such things because he knew as a minister of the gospel, his responsibility was to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do so boldly. And he did week after week. And as he preached the gospel, one of the things that he was um, very fond of saying was that he preached the gospel because he believed that it is the only hope for mankind. And that statement, that sentiment really was more meaningful if you realize that that Lloyd-Jones had given up a very lucrative a prosperous, successful medical career in order to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what did he mean when he said that the gospel is the only hope for mankind? Well, he meant this. He meant that every other possible hope has been tried and it's failed. So mankind has tried philosophy. The Greeks pursued wisdom. Of course, as you go through school, you hear about all the different Greek philosophers and the things that they reasoned about, and they thought deeply about uh, nature and humanity and reality, and they did their best to come up with wisdom, but for all of that, their wisdom, their philosophy could not change the human heart, and so over time, that society crumbled under the weight of its own corruption, which is what happens to every great society. Over time, it crumbles under the weight of its own corruption. Mankind has tried education. Education. So towards the end of the 19th century, uh, there was a lot of uh, thought that the next century was going to be the best century. Uh, The thought was that mankind is basically good, and all mankind needs is just a little more education, and that mankind is going to achieve great things, and we're going to put to end all societal ills, and we're going to have this golden age of humanity. That's the end of the 19th century, and of course, in the 20th century, two world wars put in the idea that education is enough to fix what's wrong with mankind. And it showed that the power of education is very limited. Along the same lines, mankind has tried science and technology. That's still big in our day. The idea that that through innovation, we can come up with solutions to everything that uh, plagues mankind, and so we see all of this technological development, but the problem is we've discovered that technology can be used for evil as well as for good. We see that in things like weapons of mass destruction and internet pornography. It can be used for evil, as well as for good. And mankind has tried government. This one is very, very popular in our day, the idea that with a good enough government, well, we can fix what's wrong with our society. The problem is history. And it hasn't mattered whether the governments have been totalitarian or whether they've been limited. Nothing has really changed. The world is still what it is. Politicians make the same promises, election cycle after election cycle. Great political leaders, they rise, but then they fall. And when you look at the course of humanity, you see that there's nothing new under the sun. Mankind has tried everything to produce a lasting prosperity, life, joyful society on earth, but every effort has failed And every effort will fail because man cannot fix what's wrong with man. According to the Bible, the thing that's wrong with man is that we are sinful by nature and separated from God. So from our earliest moments, we're broken. And we don't have it within us to fix ourselves. Despite our best efforts, the world is still marked by hatred, racism, war, sickness, and death. Friends, this fundamental problem of sin is what ails mankind. And the only way to address that fundamental problem of sin is to have a solution that meets mankind at that point. And that is why Lloyd-Jones believed in the gospel and said it was the only hope for mankind because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have the message that God has given humanity in order to save them and to bring them into a right relationship with God and a right relationship with one another. And that's really what we're going to see over the next few weeks as we study these verses from verse 11 to 22. We're going to see how God, through the gospel, brings together those that were separated, brings people who are far from God close to Him, brings people who are separated from one another into a a unity, into a good relationship. We're going to see that as we study this passage. So we are continuing our study of the book of Ephesians this morning. Uh, For the last three weeks, if you've been with us, you know that we have looked at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2. Uh, We've seen the reality that the Bible teaches that we were dead in trespasses and sins, which is not a little problem. It's an insurmountable problem. It's the kind of problem that we can't fix on our own, and yet we saw great hope. Verse 4, but God, this glorious God who is filled with love, well, He made us alive in Christ, speaking to believers, gave us spiritual life. Last week, we finished that section looking at verses 8 to 10. We saw that salvation is by God's grace and not by good works. And so if you're here this morning, perhaps it's your first time or perhaps you're checking out Christianity, we want you to understand from the very beginning that you are not sitting in a room filled with people who believe that they are good enough for God or believe that they have somehow earned God's favor by their good deeds. No, we understand salvation to be a free gift something that God must do, and we understand our God to be a glorious Savior who freely gives that gift in Christ. But then we saw at the very end, verse 10, that even though salvation is not by good works, there is a place for good works. Uh, Those who are saved, those who have uh, a right relationship with God through the gospel, well, they are saved, they are brought into that relationship in order to do good works, good works that God has planned beforehand, and good works that bring glory to God. Well, As we shift now, looking at verses 11 to 21, we're going to see that this passage is in some way similar to what we've already studied. There are some similarities between the two passages. But what I want you to understand this morning is that Paul is shifting, and he's shifting focus here. So before, in verses 1 to 10, the Apostle Paul was talking about the effect of the gospel in the lives of individual men and women. If you're a Christian this morning, you felt that. You know what it is to have been dead in trespasses and sins. And now you know what it is to be made alive in Christ. You've experienced that. And Paul, he wants us to understand that salvation is for individuals. But now in verses 11 to 22, he's changing to teach us that God also had purposes that were corporate in nature. In other words, what God is doing in the gospel is not only saving individual men and women, but he's saving them to be a part of something much greater and much bigger than them. And that is the church of Jesus Christ. And the remarkable thing about about this this new humanity, that's the way one commentator put it, and I thought it's helpful, this new humanity, is that this new humanity would be comprised of two groups which formerly hated one another. That's one of the big emphases that you're going to see in this passage. Paul's going to be speaking to Gentile believers in particular. Uh, That makes sense because the Ephesians, in large part, were Gentiles. If you're not familiar with that word Gentile, it simply means not Jewish. So anyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile. Paul is speaking to these Gentile believers. In verses 11 to 13, he tells them what they once were. And then he tells them how God has brought them near. Now that's going to be in particular what we study this morning. Then in verses 14 to 18, Paul goes into detail about how this union this union between God and these Gentile believers, and in particular, these Gentile believers and Jewish believers, he tells us how that occurred. And of course, we know it's through Christ who is our peace. And then in verses 19 to 22, Paul tells them how they, together with Jewish believers, have now become one new people of God. So God's purposes are not only for individuals, but they're also corporate. And the the gospel works to bring together people that are alienated into one new people, one new body. We're going to study that in the next few weeks. Well, we are going to study on verses 11 to 13 this morning. Uh, What I want us to do, though, as we study these verses, is I want us to keep in mind that the story that Paul tells these Ephesians about who they were or what they were, well, that's our story as well. We were those who were far from God. But through Christ, we have been brought near. And I want us to remember this as well. that we know men and women who are still far from God. Some of them we love very much. And we want them to be brought near. And so there's a lot of hope for us in this passage because we see that through the gospel, they also can be brought near. If you have the little handout that they gave you as you came through the door this morning, you'll see the outline for the sermon. There's two points from verses 11 to 13. Two points are these. Before Christ, we were far off. So we'll see that as we look at verses 11 and 12. And then the second point, in Christ, we have been brought near. And we'll see that in verse 13. Let's look at that first point. Before Christ, we were far off. Look with me, if you will, at verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision... Which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And these verses, the Apostle Paul is speaking to these Ephesian believers, and he's speaking to them about what they were, about their state before they became believers. And as you look at these verses, you see it's really a picture of alienation. Uh, It's a picture of separation, separation from God and separation from the people of God. And if you look at verse 13, you see Paul describes it in this way. He says that they are far off, and they're far off. So let's look in particular at verse 12, and I want us to see what Paul means when he says that these uh, Ephesian believers were far off. Before they came to Christ, it means this, these Ephesian believers and other Gentiles like them, they lacked the spiritual privileges that had been enjoyed by the people of Israel. And the people of Israel were the Old Testament people of God. And if you look at verse 12, you see that Paul goes into great detail in talking about those spiritual privileges, the spiritual privileges that these Ephesian believers lacked. There are five of them. First, he says that they had been separated from Christ. And second, he says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And third, he says that they were strangers to the covenants of promise. And fourth, he said they had no hope or were having no hope. And fifth, they were without God in the world. Now, there's so much in here, but I want us to unpack this little bit by little bit. I want us to look at each one of these descriptions and think about how this is the story of these Ephesian believers, but then also to think about how this is our story as well. This, brothers and sisters, is what we were. And so when we get to verse 13 and we celebrate the gospel, we're celebrating what God has done for us as well. Look at the first description then, separated from Christ. So throughout their history, the people of Israel, they lived with great expectation. Uh, from the time of Abraham on as this new nation is formed, these, these people are living with an expectation that God has a particular plan and purpose for them, And that that plan centers on a central person, the Messiah, right? Or the Christ. Both words mean the same thing. An anointed one, a coming king, a great savior, someone who's going to come and rescue the people. And so the people of Israel lived their lives with expectation, anticipation. And when they looked at history, it didn't seem meaningless. It seemed altogether purposeful. But it was so different for the Ephesians and for other Gentiles like them. You see, they lived in a world in which there was no real hope. So the Stoic philosophers were told, taught that history repeats itself in a 3,000-year cycle. And at the end of the 3,000 years, the universe would be burned up and then would be reborn for the sake of doing it over again. More popularly, in terms of Greek mythology, the afterlife, if you know, It was was presented as kind of a a shadowy existence, kind of a dark and shadowy place. Dreary is a good word for it. And so these Ephesian believers, who, who they used to be, what they were, well, because they were separated from Christ, that was their view of history. As they lived out their lives, they thought that all of this was ultimately meaningless. You live, and then you die, and that's what it is. Now, perhaps as you sit here this morning, that's what you believe about history, that there really is no point, that there really is no purpose to it. Well, that's one of the problems that these Ephesian believers face, but it's not the only problem, because if you understand who the Christ is, if you understand who the Messiah is in light of the New Testament, well, then you know that to be separated from Christ is to be separated from the only source of salvation. The only hope of reconciliation with God is the Savior whom God has sent, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes to the Father except through me. What that does, brothers and sisters, is it draws a line between humanity, those who have accepted Christ and those who have not accepted Christ, and the proclamation of King Jesus is that, well, he's the only way. It is an exclusive faith. Acts 4.12 says the same thing. There is salvation in no one else. Is speaking of Jesus there. There's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be Saved. Well, friends, that's how it was for these Ephesian believers. History seemed meaningless, and they were ultimately separated from Christ, which is to say, separated from the only one who saves. We have to understand, brothers and sisters, that's what we were as well. We were also separated from Christ, we had no relationship with Him. We were separated from the only source of salvation, which is to say that we were separated from the only source of the forgiveness of sins. And those friends whom we love now, who don't know Jesus, this is where they are. They're separated from Christ. And so they, they need our prayer and our love and our bold proclamation. There's a second description you see here, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Israel. So we've talked about this special people of Israel that, that God really formed together from this one man, Abraham. And you see the story throughout the Old Testament of what God did in, in leading and guiding this particular group of people, the people of Israel. He rescued them from Egypt the strong arm. He brought them through the promised land, feeding them by the bread of heaven. He brought them into the promised land as he said that he would. In every way, he cared for this particular people. He raised up judges and kings to lead them. He sent prophets among them when they sinned in order to call them to repentance. He had a special relationship, is the point, with this particular group of people, the people of Israel. And this is a great spiritual privilege. And Paul, Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. He says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But these Ephesian believers and other Gentiles like them, well, they they were also alienated or separated from the people of Israel. And it wasn't just an ethno-linguistic separation. It was actually a hostility. There was an enmity between these two groups so that the Jews hated the Gentiles and the Gentiles hated the Jews, and if you look at verse 11 of this passage, you see something of that hatred shine through in the way that, that the Jews were speaking of these Gentiles. Look at verse 11. It says, Paul says, You Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. That word there, uncircumcision, uh, was not intended to be flattering, it was intended to be a, um, a disparaging comment. Why? Because circumcision was a special sign of the people of Israel's covenant relationship with God. It marked them off in a particular way as the people of God. And so when they looked at those who were uncircumcised or not circumcised and called them the uncircumcision, they were pointing out the estrangement of these Ephesian uh, people and other Gentiles like them from God. And so instead of being a light, instead of telling others about God and and his power and his purpose and plan for history, the Jews, they pulled back from the Gentiles and they hated the Gentiles and they did not interact with these Gentiles. One commentator wrote this about that hostility. He said, the Jews had an immense contempt for the Gentiles. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. God, they said, loved only Israel of all the nations that he had made. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in her hour of sorest need. For that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object of contempt to the Jews, and the barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was the equivalent of death. Unless we think that the hatred is only on one side, well then read world history and listen to someone like Antiochus Epiphanes who swept into Israel and wholesale slaughtered many of the Jews. The point that you see in the Bible is that there is this hostility, there is this enmity, there is this alienation, uh, there's this hatred really that separated the Gentiles from the Jews. So think about what you know of the Old Testament. Think about how many Gentile believers can you think of in the Old Testament. I thought about this this week. I thought of, well, there's Rahab. There's Ruth, a Moabite. There's Naaman, the Syrian commander. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar. That's kind of, we're not sure, maybe, not sure. And I kind of scratched my head from there on, whether or not there were others. But the point is, just a handful. Now think about for century after century after century, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of, of these Ephesians and other Gentiles, they lived their life alienated from the people of God and so separated from the truth of God. That's what they were. They were alienated from those who knew God. Now, on this side of the cross, things have changed somewhat. The, the Jewish people no longer enjoy the exclusive relationship with God that they once enjoyed. But it's still true that before we were saved, that we were like these Ephesians because we were separated from the people of God, the New Testament people of God, the church. Now, that strikes some people as funny, because they, well, they grew up in the church, and they've always gone to church, and of course, they're a part of the church, but friend, if you understand the teaching of the Bible, the teaching of the Bible is that to be a part of the church is a spiritual thing. It's a spiritual reality. Uh, It's something where you must be born again. You must possess the life of God within if you're truly to be a part of the church, and We were not at that point born again. We were not at that point saved. And so we did not belong to the church, even though we desperately needed to. There's a third description, stranger to the covenants of promise. Well, what were the covenants of promise? Well, these were the commitments that God had made to the people of Israel. They were particular promises that he made to them. promises that he would be their God and that they would be his people, promises that he would watch over them and provide for them. Most especially the great promise of the Old Testament is that he would send the Messiah, that he would send the Christ who would rescue them and who would deliver them. And again, this is a wonderful spiritual blessing. But the Ephesians and other Gentiles like them, well, they they were separated from those promises as well. Those promises hadn't been made to them. God hadn't promised to watch over them and be their God in the way he promised to watch over Israel and be Israel's God. And in a certain sense, this is true of us as well. Uh, some of us grew up away from the church. We had no real religion in our life, but, but many of us actually were raised within the church. And we sat week after week after week hearing someone from up front talking about the promises of God or perhaps a Sunday school teacher who told us about the promises of God. And we heard these promises and we listened to them, but to us it seemed like a strange thing. We didn't understand. We didn't get. You see, they weren't real. They were just religious words from religious people. And we could read the Bible, but when we read the Bible, it just seemed to be somewhat of a confusing book written by a bunch of people a long time ago. It didn't impact us. You see, there's this separation from the promises of God. They didn't belong to us at that point, but then when, when we were saved, well, something dramatic happened. So I wonder how many sitting here this morning would have to say that that's where they are. You know, you're, you're here this morning. Perhaps you're here because your parents make you be here. But if you were honest, it just kind of seems like an odd thing. You don't really understand what we're talking about. It doesn't seem very important to you. There seem like a lot more important things going on in your life. Friend, if that's you this morning, all we can say is that we very much understand. Because we used to be there. And we used to think the same thing. But we would encourage you to this, to know that we have found the promises of God to be exceedingly precious in Christ. And we'd encourage you to keep listening and keep learning. Keep seeking God in that way. There's a fourth description, having no hope, right? This is it just, it, it's like it builds and gets stronger, having no hope. And of course, that makes sense, right? Following what we've just talked about, the fact that these Ephesians and other believers like them, they didn't have the promises of God. It makes sense that they would not have hope. The people of Israel did have hope. They had the promises of God. They had this coming Messiah who was going to rescue them. But, but for Gentiles living in this time, well, they were, they were without hope. They did the best they could. They lived lives as best they could. They achieved as much as they could. But then they had to stop and consider the fact that this life must end. My goal is not to be a pessimistic pastor. My goal is to be a realistic pastor. Days click by, don't they? And years click by, don't they? And we all face this thing called death. And if you're looking for hope in anything in this world, friend, you have to understand that one day... Whatever it is you're hoping in, it will be taken away from you by death. Now, that's what it is to live without hope. The Greek philosopher Diogenes, he wrote about that. He said, I rejoice in sport in my youth. Long enough will I lie beneath the earth bereft of voice, of life still as a stone, and shall leave the sunlight which I love, good man though I am. Then I shall see nothing more. Rejoice, O my soul. In thy youth. now well, friends, we know what that's like. You know, before we had a relationship with God through Jesus, we had hopes. You know, we, we wanted to do well in school, we wanted to get into a good college, uh, we wanted to get a good career, we wanted to find someone who would love us that we loved, we wanted to make a lot of money. We hope to be successful. We, we wanted to be able to retire comfortably. Those are the hopes that this world offers, and we know what that's like. But like Diogenes, we have to confess, if we thought about it, that's one of the tragedies of life in a, a very affluent place is that you don't think about it, but when we thought about death, we realized that ultimately, if all we have is this life, we're hoping in something we're going to lose. And so death loomed before us. It was dark and scary and confusing, and we didn't know what would happen. Well, what about you? If you're here this morning and you haven't followed Jesus, let me just ask, honestly deal with yourself, what are you hoping in? Friend, I'd have to say that I probably already listed some of those things. You no, know, who doesn't want to be successful? Who doesn't want to have a good job? Who doesn't want to make money? Who doesn't want to have someone who loves them? Who doesn't want to be able to retire comfortably? Those are the things, again, that this life can give us But have you ever seriously grappled with how fragile it all is? Just think about these things, right? Try as you might, you might not succeed in school. You might have a good job now, but then the next recession comes along and you might not have that job anymore. And if you're hoping in a relationship, you, you have to understand that marriages end badly at times or death takes away someone that we love very much. If you're hoping in money, well, again, it all can be wiped out by by one bad investment or by one bad medical diagnosis. Friends, the hopes of this life are fragile. They're transitory. They fade away. Friend, you need a better hope. These Ephesian believers, that's what they were. They lived without hope. And we know what that's like as well. It does seem... That hope is in short supply in our culture in this day. Do you notice how wealthy we are and how many toys we have and how utterly hopeless it's becoming? So just this last week, the government approved this new three-digit number, 988, and it connects those who call that number with a suicide hotline where they can talk with someone who will help them because there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands, and we should weep over it, of people who are desperately hopeless. And they need help. And they need hope. And it wouldn't surprise me in a room like this if there weren't a few that were there or close to it. Friend, we want you to know this morning, we want to just kind of front load as best we can, the good news of Jesus is that there is hope offered this morning. So listen and hear about this hope. There's a fifth characteristic, without God in the world. This characteristic is really kind of the summary of all that we've been talking about, you see. Uh, It's this characteristic summary. The Jews had a relationship with the true God. And because they had a relationship with a true God, well, then they had expectation for history. And they had great promises, and they had the hope of the Messiah. And so they lived out their lives in this way, but the Ephesians and other Gentiles, they were without God in the world. It's not to say that they were atheists. They they weren't atheists. They were very, very religious. They had many gods whom they worshipped through idolatry. But but here's the thing. Those supposed gods were lies. They didn't exist. And do you notice they're not worshiped anymore? So they lived their lives without God in the world. They lacked a relationship with the true God. And friends, that's how it was for us as well. Some of us know what it's like to, to grow up in a home where God is never mentioned. Some of us know what it's like to grow up in a home where the gospel in Jesus Christ is constantly proclaimed. But here's the reality. If you haven't been born again, you are without God in the world. If you haven't been saved, you are without God in the world. You don't have a saving relationship with God that's offered through Jesus, and that's, that's how it was for us. We know what it's like, and we were just as lost as Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists that are worshiping false gods or atheists who proudly proclaim the knowledge that there is no God. Friend, that's who we were. You now You see, if you're a believer here this morning, there's no room for pride for us. There's no reason to think we're better than other people. We simply acknowledge that this is our story, that we were hopeless, that we were without God, that we were separated from the only one who gives life. We have to acknowledge that this morning. That's how it was for us. So look at this picture. Look at the picture that he paints for these Ephesian believers of what they were in us as well, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world, it really is a depressing picture. It's intended to be because it's real. And it points us to what it's like to live life without God. As we approach Christmas in just the coming, coming weeks, it struck me as I thought about this this week that this is the world that Christ was born into. You know, the knowledge of the true God was kind of locked away in a little corner of the Roman Empire by a group of people who were unwilling to share that knowledge with others. And the vast portion of humanity lived out its life in this kind of darkness, without hope, without God. And that's what makes Christmas so significant. That's what makes it worth celebrating, is that when Christ came into this world to rescue, he came not only to rescue Jews, but Gentiles. And to bring them into a right relationship with God so that people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language would one day gather around the throne of God, praising him, for the hope we have in Jesus Christ. It's what we celebrate in this time of year. It's a glorious thing. Let me make one observation, one application before we move on. Think about about what you've seen in this, but now kind of switch the way you're looking at it. Even though the Jews enjoyed so many spiritual privileges, the people of Israel, for the most part, it did not benefit them. That's the story of the Old Testament. God reaches out again and again and again and again and again, and he says that the heart of this people, it's diamond hard. They would not worship Him in the way that He deserved. For the most part, the people of Israel did not benefit from the spiritual privileges that they possessed. Over and over and over, they give into idolatry. And the Messiah finally comes, and they reject Him, and they kill Him. Most Jews rejected Christ in His day. Most Jews still reject Christ. It should be a warning to us, and here's the warning. It is one thing to have spiritual privileges it is entirely another thing to benefit from those spiritual privileges. It is possible to have spiritual privileges and yet not benefit from them. So we've been focusing on the Ephesians and Gentiles like them who lack these spiritual privileges, but now let's think about what it was for these Jews who had all the spiritual privileges and yet still rejected their Messiah. Well, here's my question. Many of you have grown up in the church You've heard the gospel preach week after week. Young people, let me talk to you in particular. You have parents who love you, who tell you about Jesus, who stand up before a group of people and ask them to pray that they'll have boldness to speak to you about Jesus, and they take you to church, and they, you hear the gospel week after week, and these are wonderful spiritual privileges. My question is, have you benefited from them, young people? Have you benefited from the privileges? Have you realized that it is not enough that your parents are Christians? Have you realized that you also must be born again? Have you realized that God is angry at your sins and that you need a Savior and that He offers the Savior to you even this morning? Have you turned from your sins and trusted in Christ? That's really the great question. It's not, are you religious? It's not, do you look nice? It's not, do you obey? It's not, can you memorize stories or Bible verses? The question is, Have you been born again? That's the way to benefit from the spiritual privileges you've received. Young people, it is very possible to go to hell from the gates of heaven. And what a tragedy it would be to spend 18 years of your life listening to the gospel and to walk away only to be lost. What a tragedy. Let me encourage you. There are reasons, good reasons, why we're here this morning. And it's not because we like just gathering together with nice people. It's because we have been saved. We know what it is to be forgiven for our sins. And we're grateful. So trust in Christ. That is the way to benefit from the spiritual privileges that you've received. Trust in Christ. There's an application. We should remember what we were before Christ saved us. Do you see that's the, the two commands that are given? Verse 11 and verse 12, there's two commands. Both times it's this word remember. Paul wants these Ephesians to remember what they were before Christ came. They were to remember what it was to be separated from Christ, to be without hope, to not know the promises of God in any real way. Why do you think Paul wanted them to remember these things? It's so that they would be led to gratitude, and to praise. Friends, we can't repay God for His goodness to us, but we can remember what He's done for us, and we can praise Him, and we can live lives of worship to Him. That's what Paul wanted. And he wanted them to remember salvation, and then that's the focus. You know, here's, here's where we change. Now look at verse 13. There's a second point. Before we were far off, but now in Christ we have been brought near. Look at verse 13. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I love the contrast again. If you remember uh, the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, the bad news. Verse 4, glorious good news, but God. You see it here again. Verse 11 and 12, the bad news, what we used to be. Verse 13, but now. You were separated, but now. Paul reminds him of this great change that happened in the lives of these Ephesian believers, they were far off, but now they've been brought near. They were separated from Christ, but now they were united with Christ by faith. The next time we study Ephesians in a few weeks, we're going to look at that more deeply. What does it mean that we have been united with Christ and with Jewish believers as well to become one people? Before we were alienated from the people of God, now they've become the people of God. Before they were strangers to the covenants of promise, now they have inherited great and precious promises. Friend, Brother or sister, if you want to know how to fight spiritual warfare, it's by knowing and believing the promises of God. That's how you do it. You trust God, not what your emotions tell you. We've inherited those promises. Before there were those who had no hope, now they had great hope. Before they were without God in the world, now God was their father. What a tremendous privilege that God lets us call him Abba. Friends, this is the tremendous difference that salvation makes in the lives of those who possess it. It takes people who are far from God and it brings them close. It brings them into a relationship with the true God so that they have life and they become the sons and daughters of God. Now, how, how did this happen? Look at the second part of verse 13. By the blood of Christ. It's always the answer. It's always the answer. How did it happen? By the blood of Christ. It was the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross that made it possible for these Ephesian believers who've been far off now to come near, to draw near to God and to the people of God. Why? Because the gospel is how we're saved. It's this message of hope. It's this message of a God who loves sinners so much that he sent his son to die that they might be saved. The Bible gives us bad news. It tells us who we are. It tells us what we are. It tells us that we're made for God, that we're made to have a relationship with him, that God designed us in that way, that we have a capacity to have a relationship with God, and yet our first parents sinned against God at the beginning, and we sinned in them, and because we come from them, well, we've all been born with a sinful nature, and that sinful nature turns us away from God. Really, what it does is it turns us in on ourselves. If you wonder why people are so selfish, it's because that's what sin has done to us. That's why I'm so selfish in the flesh. And friend, that's why you also have lived like this world is all there is. And that the point of life is to get as much as you can for yourself before you die. Friends, that's what sin does. It turns us in on ourselves. It teaches us to reject God, to not listen to him, to not follow him, but instead to do what we want to do. And we've all done that. And it's led us to sin against God in countless ways. And it's led us to sin against others, to harm others in many different ways. Sitting here this morning, we have all done things that we know are wrong and wrong in a very deep level. That's what sin is. It's this alienation from God. It's this separation from God. The message of the Bible is that there's nothing we can do to be good enough for God. There's no way that we can make up for the sins that we have committed. Left to ourselves, friends, we would be far from God forever. We would experience his judgment when we die, and we would be far away. Experiencing that forever and ever and ever. And that's what death is. Ultimately, death is separation from God. But then there's hope. God the Father sent His Son into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The hope of Israel that had been promised so long before came into the world to live a perfect life for sinners. He always obeyed the will of His Father. He always loved, even in the most desperate of circumstances. He always did what was right. And then, in great love, He lays down His life on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. That's why Jesus died. His life wasn't taken from Him. He laid it down as a sacrifice For sinful men and women. He died and then he rose from the dead, which makes him unique. That's what makes him different than Buddha or Muhammad or others. He died and then he rose from the dead, proving who he is. And now there's this glorious good news. And the good news is that if you will turn from your sin and from living for yourself, instead put your trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone, friend, Jesus will be your Savior. God will bring you near in that way into a relationship with him and all your sins will be forgiven and all of the righteousness of Christ, all the things that he did will be freely given to you as a gift of God's grace. That's the hope we have as believers, that God is a God who saves that God is a God who draws us near through Christ. Here's my question. Have you been brought near? Has God done that for you? Have you responded with faith to this message of salvation in Jesus? That's the great question of your life, friend. We press it upon you this morning, lovingly, hopefully, asking you to trust in Christ. Let me conclude the sermon this morning with just two brief words of application for those that have trusted in Christ. It's a glorious thing to be brought near. Verse 13 reminds us that we have been brought near to be beloved sons and daughters in Christ. It's a privilege. And here's the application. We should take advantage of the privilege. To be brought near to God as Father and to be given access to the throne of grace is the greatest possible privilege. And we have it every moment of every day. You will have it tomorrow morning when you wake up. And all the thought about what you need to do and accomplish comes immediately. You have it in that moment, the privilege to just open the Word of God and begin your day by faith, spending time with God and drawing near to Him and praying and asking God to guide you through the day. You have that privilege tomorrow. Let me encourage you to take advantage. John Stott said, This nearness to God, which all Christians enjoy through Christ, is a privilege we too often take for granted. Our God does not keep his distance or stand in his dignity like some oriental potentate, nor does he insist on any complicated ritual or protocol. On the contrary, through Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we have immediate access to him as our Father. So let's, Christ Fellowship, encourage one another to take advantage of this access. Another application, because God is able to bring near those who are far from him, we should never despair in evangelism. Our well, friends, sitting here this morning, all of us who are followers of Jesus, we know people that we love, we desire so much that they would put their hope in Christ, but, but many of them seem hardened, and it seems like they'll never believe, and we're tempted to give up. This passage teaches us to not give up. This passage teaches us that God is a God who brings near those who are far from him. James Montgomery Boyce had this to say. He said, someone was once talking with John Newton, the converted slave trader whom God brought from a position of utter wretchedness to be a preacher of the gospel. They were talking about despair, and the person asked Newton if he did not despair of the salvation of some person. Newton replied, I never did despair since God saved me. And that's the hope we have. Brothers and sisters, the God who saved us, the God who brought us near is the God who can bring near those whom we love. So let's encourage one another let's press on praying and sharing the gospel with those who need Christ. So Martin Lloyd-Jones was fond of saying the gospel is the only hope for the world. He meant it because the gospel is the only way that God draws near to himself those who are far away. If you hope in the things of this world, you're sure to lose them. But if you hope in Jesus, you have a hope that's stronger than death. It's the kind of hope that brings those who are far from God into a relationship with him. Let's praise him and let's live for him in this coming week. Let's pray.